You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lemmer, Evan Ratliff. We have a special guest. Special guest that in little, the studio. That, that little rascal you hear in the background is Guy Linsky, who kind of looks like he's trying to nurse on Max right now. <laughs> this is uh, Guy Linsky's uh, trip to the office. Yeah. I've been taking care of him all week. Just did this uh, interview that you're going to listen to. Who did you uh, talk to? I interviewed- just uh, did this interview. I just did it, yeah. I just did it. I um, uh, interviewed Megan Dom. She's great. She is great. She is. Uh, she has a new book out. It's called The Unspeakable. It is a collection of personal essays. It's genuinely incredible. It, it's an amazing book. I feel like um, often we're trying to do these intros really fat, like much faster than we can we do, and it's hard to inspire ourselves. I think having like a, a ba- like you having a crying baby in your arms is really the magic we've been missing. <laughs> so guys should just start coming to every yeah, intro. Yeah, even like you could even have like a fake doll, just like a t- tape recorder in it, whatever. <laughs> Wait, uh, but you guys have a Megan Dom essay. Yeah, so uh, fifteen site, right? years ago, Megan Dom wrote this piece called "My Misspent Youth," which is about being a young writer in New York and going deeply into debt. Uh, it touches on basically like every theme this show has ever touched on. It's fantastic, and it is up in full on long form. Thanks to Megan for uh, letting us reprint that. I know Guy Linsky is upset that no one's talked about sponsors. Yeah, he's like he's like Guy Linsky's about the money. Yeah. <laughs> Fund my college education, Max. Um, Wait, why does Guy have to have like the voice of like a tired old man? Because <laughs> he's the ghost of a reincarnated old man. He's got kind of he, old man. He does look. look like an old Jewish man. That's true. <laughs> uh, who's sponsoring the show this week? Well, one sponsor people may know. It's Tiny Letter from the good people at Mailchimp. If you have some news in your life that you want to send out, like you got a new child, or you wrote a new story, or you want to do that every week. You got a group of people you want to inform? I like to have a child every week. <laughs> Tiny letter. Tiny letter for the people who have a child every week. Max, uh, who, who else do we have sponsors? Uh, Scribd. Scribd is also sponsoring the show. With Scribd, you get unlimited access to more than half a million ebooks and 30,000 audiobooks on your phone, tablet, web browser. It's all just $8.99 a month. But if you go right now to scribd.com slash longform, you'll get three months free. That's scribd.com slash longform. How, how would I spell Scribd? Oh, that's uh, S-C-R-I-B-D. Dot com slash long form. Uh, our final sponsor is 
Oscar. Oscar is a new kind of health insurance company. I've been hearing lots of good things about it from the people I know who are on it. Um, you can go to highoscar.com slash longform. They'll give you a free quote. Um, Max is going to punch in a little later in the show and tell us a little bit about what Oscar is and how they're different than most of the insurance companies you've probably dealt with before. And in the meantime, here is Max with Megan Dom. <laughs> Hello, Megan Dom. Or Megan Down. Megan Dom or Megan Down? I'll answer to either. I say Dom. You say I, Dom. I say Dom, but well, that's, then your name is Dom. it's only in the last few years that I've said that. You switched it? Well, I grew up, it was it was Dom. So my parents said Dom. And I realized, and my parents finally admitted, that my father had actually grown up saying Dom. And at some point when they, when my parents were first married and they were making huge efforts to break away from the provincialism of their Southern Illinois uh, backwater uh, roots, they ran into a German professor or something like that at Stanford who said, it's Dome. It's not <laughs> Dom, it's Dome. And so they started pronouncing it that way. So I just decided to start saying Dom because that's what most people default to. But it's weird because I also said Dom for like, you know, 35 years. So yeah. I actually just wish I had changed my name when I started publishing. I, I don't like my last name at all. It's just confusing and it's you always have to spell it. And... You can be anyone you want on the long form podcast. Oh, okay. what, what, what would you like your last name to be? I don't know. I, I, the other day, like I started having this idea like I should have... I should have called myself like Megan St. Marks or something like that. <laughs> I think that also my parents are, you know, well, my mother's not living anymore, but when she was, th- there was just this sort of chronic embarrassment over what I was writing and difficulty with, you know, dealing with having my name out there. So I think it would have been, I think they would have initially been really insulted if I had changed my name, but I think ultimately it would have been less painful for everyone. <laughs> like if they had known all the things you were going to write about them, they would have picked to uh, have it be something yeah, different. Yeah, I just think it's just hard. I don't know. There have been people kind of crawl out of the woodwork and say like, oh, is that your daughter? Like, did she write that? And it's just, there are people that don't need to really have a say in it or have an opinion and and have never read that kind of thing and never would if they hadn't seen my name there so that's but you know that's every everyone runs into that it's like who is your audience and you know you, you can't control people's reactions so i i suppose in retrospect wishing i had changed my name is some sort of comes out of some sort of impulse to control people's reactions which is foolhardy of course it's just interesting to hear you say that because your work is so personal and you're like putting yourself out there so much. It's interesting. Like, I yeah. feel like the whole thing is like, I'm going to write as, uh, like as, as close to like the brutal, honest truth mm-hmm. as I can. And one thing that's very interesting reading your work is how do people react to it? Right. It's surprise, sort of surprising to hear you say like, I kind of wish like most people, but why know. should I have dragged my parents into it is what I'm saying. I'm writing about myself. So I think it might've been more appropriate to kind of, contain that that self if i had ever had children i would not want them to have my last name at all not only because of the pronunciation issue but i just don't they don't need to be associated with that (laughs) that. yeah i mean i i I write about myself but in a in in a pretty particular way i mean i'm not i i really don't believe in just like blurting it all out it's very processed and it's very controlled and i like to think that 
by the end of reading it, people know a lot about the narrator and, and these, the kind of persona that I have created in order to express certain ideas, but not so much about me personally. Okay. Your book is called Unspeakable. Yeah. It involves essays about your dating history, your mother, your grandmother, a near-death experience, your love of dogs, your time as a honorary lesbian. Yes. I just read it this week, and and uh, your expectation is that I would not come away knowing you very well. No, I. Well, you know certain things. You know, you know me from a couple of different angles. I guess it's more. I'm speaking honestly to the reader, but I'm I'm talking about stuff. I mean, I'm using myself as a lens to talk about other things. I mean, there there is a piece. It's it's called honorary dyke actually, and um, it has to do with a a particular. Aesthetic. It's a kind of a it's kind of a visceral sort of concept. So I'm talking about being a particular kind of straight woman who is drawn to a particular um, segment of lesbian culture that has really to do with like haircuts and music and certain kinds of um, clothing, certain kinds of cars, Subaru Outbacks, <laughs> um, and so yes, like any young woman of a certain. Um, certain cultural uh, stereotype worth her salt. I, I had my my dabbling, but I used that that experience dabbling in lesbianism more as a tool to look at this larger subculture and this larger um, fascination that straight women have with with lesbian culture. So it's not really about my affair with a woman. That is a, a route that I am taking to talk about this other larger, more abstract thing. Right. Just to push back a little bit, it's also about like three years in which you were in your early early thirties, right? It's like thirty two to thirty five. Oh yeah, right. Where you're like trying on an identity. Well, I wasn't say- trying to be a lesbian at that time. I was just looking like one. Like I had this idea that I could look like really hot, like that men would like me if I kind of looked. I was like a straight chick that was like you know kind of ambiguous. It didn't work really. <laughs> it didn't play. No, no, not I mean, in LA anyway. Anyone is allowed to do anything they want in their thirties, but like, um, it does say something about where you're at in your life if you're kind of like trying on a new identity, though, right? It wasn't a new identity. I mean, it was very much in me. I don't know. I well, I have to say that I actually looked pretty similar. I had, I always just had really short hair. I mean, I had short hair uh, through my late twenties into my mid to late thirties, really. But for a lot of that time, I lived in Nebraska. There is an aspect to living in certain parts of the Midwest where a lot of women just look like 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 lesbians, no matter what. <laughs> so I, I, I scanned um, you know middle of the road in Nebraska, and then when I got to LA, like I had my Subaru Outback, I had my short hair, I had my you know my big dog, and that it suddenly it was like the uh, it was it was just skewing in a whole different direction. I want to uh, uh, roll us back here for a second because uh, you've already like uh, busted up like six assumptions I had after reading your book. So I'm just going to start actually at the beginning because mm-hmm. I had some assumptions earlier that uh, maybe also are wrong. So you uh, have written novels, you have written reported stuff, you write a weekly opinion column for the LA Times, but you're probably best known for for these personal essays we're talking about. I suppose um, I had this essay collection called My Misspent Youth, which came out in 2001. And it's so funny because everyone told me not to write it. My agent at the time said it would be a career ender, you know, 
not that my career was really had really started, um, but I I wanted to do these pieces. I really liked the form, and so I did them. And you know, ten years later, it was still the book that that everyone talks about more than other books. So so yeah, the, I there isn't there is an audience that that likes the personal essays. But I actually I've been a newspaper columnist for nine years, so I think I have a lot of readers there that aren't familiar with. With anything, you else, don't think probably. there's much crossover between the two. I think the there's two? some. I think there's some, but newspaper readers tend to be older. I, I, I'm hoping that there's more of a crossover, you know, especially with this book. But no, I think there are definitely people that just know me as the person who weighs in with this 730 word <laughs> column. I, I have to write. I, you know, it still appears in print, so I have a word restriction. Um, so yeah, I just have to write this little thing every week. Hi, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. Uh, we got a new one. It's Oscar. And Oscar is a new kind of health insurance company. It's specifically designed for people who do not get health insurance uh, through their job, through a big company. Uh, you freelancers out there, listen up. They make it super, super simple to get the coverage you need and actually understand what's happening uh, offer a totally reasonable price. So how do they do that? Oscar believes in technology. Uh, they've got a great app that makes everything totally straightforward. There's no Byzantine world of paperwork, no weeks of going back and forth just to get your coverage set up. Uh, with Oscar, the whole enrollment process only lasts like 20 or 30 minutes, start to finish. Another great thing about Oscar, they've got a health and wellness benefit. So you can get up to 240 bucks a year just by hitting daily walking goals. It's based on how much you walk now. Basically, they'll pay you to exercise uh, Oscar, right now, it's only in New York and New Jersey, uh, but I know plenty of people in New York and New Jersey who could really use a service like this. Anyone who's tried to get health insurance on the exchange can tell you uh, there has to be an easier way. Oscar is it. So go to highoscar.com slash longform. That's highoscar.com slash longform. Uh, if you are in need of individual health insurance for you or your family, uh, it's a great option. Uh, we got another sponsor. It's Scribd. You're a reader. You're listening to the show. You're a reader. You're going to like Scribd. Scribd is the subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to the largest library of ebooks and audiobooks out there. Head over to scribd.com slash longform. You can get started three months free. They've got uh, more than half a million ebooks, all kinds of writers you love. If you're listening to this, you probably like audiobooks too. I certainly do. Uh, and they've got 30,000 of those that you can listen to unlimited, as many as you want. Uh, as a bunch of people who've been on the show who have audiobooks up there, John Heilman, Nancy Jo Sales, David Kushner. So go check out Scribd. It's all the books you could ever want to read or listen to on your phone, your tablet, your web browser, all for just $8.99 a month. And you're going to get three months free if you go to scribd.com slash longform. Unlimited listening. Your car, your train, at the gym, wherever the story takes you, scribd.com slash longform. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash longform. Unlimited books. How can you say No. Uh, thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Thanks very much to Oscar as well. And let's get back to Megan Dom. At the very beginning of the new book, first sentence actually, you kind of talk about your mixed feelings about the form itself. Yeah. Which is uh, interesting for someone who is perhaps best known for that. So what are your mixed feelings about the personal Well, there's way too much of it. There's way too much of people writing about themselves and not going out and learning about other things in the world. And I am exhibit A. And, and um, 
I'm always a little bit sheepish about it. I, I really, I think that there's a kind of laziness to writing personal essays. And I continue to do them because for whatever reason, it seems to be the thing that I am best at, or or at least it's the thing that people seem to be most interested in. So, so you're not doing it for yourself? I, yeah, no, I do. But I, I guess it's like I, I publish them because it seems to be my best work or or it seems to be what what people end up end up talking about i guess i think that when personal essays are are good they're they can be fantastic the problem is i think that we are oversaturated with um a lot of stuff that's written in the first person and it's very personal that it's also like a very first draft just because of digital media and the way it is i think that we're in a thing where there's a, there are a lot of first drafts floating around that people are reading and and posting on facebook and sharing and discussing and it would have been nice if that writer had a chance to revise get edited think about it again and and i'm guilty of this too i you know i i write for these platforms too i have certainly written things and then had them go up the next day but i also appreciate that i predate the blogosphere and i basically had 10 years of writing this stuff um where a lot of it got rejected and a lot of it i had to rewrite a million times and there would be six months between it being accepted and actually appearing in the publication so there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of time between conceiving a piece, writing a piece, and having it, it published. Um, and so I guess the reason I cringe a little bit is because I think that there's less and less of that. I think there's just less editing, and, and writers have um, don't have the luxury as much of, of taking that time. And so stuff just gets kind of slapped on the internet. And then, and then, to answer your question, the personal essay sort of develops this reputation as something very confessional or like a diary entry. And that kind of bothers me because it feels too light not even necessarily too light it's almost it's sometimes it's it's like too heavy it's it's just not processed it it's just you know you can't just sort of say well this happened to me and this happened to me and i i felt this way or i did this terrible thing or you have to present the reader with with a set of ideas that have been thought about and you're offering them an opportunity to think about them with you. I see it as thinking alongside me. But in order to do that, you have to have spent a lot of time thinking <laughs> about it. And so it doesn't so you can't accomplish that when you're just writing something, sort of just recounting your experience and throwing it up on the internet the next day. And I'm not saying that everything out there is like that. Of course not. There's stuff that's that's very, very rigorously thought over. But I just think that we're in this moment where there's so much so many people writing about themselves and their experiences in a way that it's almost like it's being published too soon. People are in the middle of their experiences and they're publishing about them. And that's how do you rise above that? I end up waiting. I mean, I all of the pieces that are in this new book, they were written for the book. I did not write them for any publication. Um, and that was a deliberate decision. I didn't want to have to... Well, first of all, I don't think... Most of them I can't imagine pitching to a magazine or something. I didn't want to have word count restrictions either. I really wanted to to write essays that I would be able to kind of stretch out and take a long time and make them long, but also also think about them a lot. Um, and so that's and it's a great luxury because it was certainly a long time 
the first piece in the book, Matricide, took me well over a year to write. And every for every two sentences I wrote, I would delete three. And it was very much a process of walking backwards writing that piece. Um, I don't think this is uh, going to ruin anyone reading it. That, that story is about your grandma dying, your mom dying, very close to each other. Right. And then uh, you very nearly dying. Right. I'm interested in the process. Like, how quickly do you start writing? How quickly do you start thinking about it? And how fully formed is that thinking before before you write? Like, do you, do you learn stuff about yourself, about that experience through writing about it? That was the hardest piece I have ever written. So many times in writing it, I just thought, I'm just going to get through this and it's never going to be published. I mean, for whatever reason, I'm compelled to try to tease out these ideas. My mother had died well over a year before she had. Yeah, it was well over a year since she passed away that I started even thinking about writing the piece. And then it was, you know, many fits and starts. And I think I got a draft at one point and, and I just said, fine, this is like never I will never publish this. It is so brutal. It is so raw. It's not appropriate for publication. It's incredibly rough on uh, your grandma. It's incredibly rough on your mom, mm-hmm. but it's more rough on you than either of them. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. The piece is called Matricide because it's about these really complicated and fraught, damaged, you might say, relationships between mothers and daughters. My mother and her mother had a horrible relationship. My grandmother damaged my mother severely emotionally. She wasn't overtly abusive, but she was a um, real narcissist, very, as my mother always said, limited person. And my grandmother lived to 91, and my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer the same week that my grandmother died. And of all the the terrible aspects to dealing with my mother being sick, the worst one, and this was unspeakable, was that she had not gotten a day of her life without her mother as a healthy person. It was almost like she was just destined to never get out from under her mother. That was just tragic. And it was the kind of thing that nobody could ever say out loud. And so in the experience of taking care of my mother, I, I there were so many things like that. Like we were expected to behave a certain way. We were expected to kind of show other people that we were mother, daughter and bonding and having these moments of epiphany and that I was a great, I was taking care of her, et cetera. And um, kind of went through the motions, but neither of us were really having that experience. <laughs> Those expectations, what people thought was always uh, very important. To your yeah, mom. she. Yeah, she was. She was concerned about what other people thought. She. She never really. My take on it, and I just want to be really clear. This is my take. This is. This is a piece about my experience with my mother, and part of the the way my mother was was that she had very different kinds of relationships with different people. Someone who was her friend could have an entirely different experience of my mother. So I think it's hard for people to read who who knew her in other ways because it's just like, what is this? I don't. This is shocking and unimaginable to me. So yeah, I, I guess in, in thinking about the piece, my grandmother died the week my mother was diagnosed with cancer. My mother died about 10 months later. And then about 10 months after that, I got this freak illness and almost died myself. And I again started to think about this idea of if I had died, it would kind of be the same thing. Like you're not allowed to walk around on this earth without your mother. So the piece really came about as I started to think about 
this trifecta of my grandmother dying, my mother dying, me almost dying. And then this other thing happened, which is then I ended up getting pregnant and having a, a miscarriage. And then I found out, I don't know why I'm like the only person, it was only eight weeks, it wasn't a huge deal, but I was like, oh, is there a way to find out if it was a boy or a girl? And the doctor was like, why do you want to know that? And I just was like, oh, just curious. And it was a girl. So I thought, wow, okay, like that's this is the end of the line. Like I have my dead grandmother, my dead mother, my dead baby. I'm the only one left here. Um, so I re- that's at, the, at that point I really started to try to write the piece, um, but it was very slow going and it was quite unsuccessful for a long time. I feel the need to kind of like tell our listeners that you ju- you just recounted that story with a smile on your face. Recounting the story what of having a miscarriage? That, just the whole thing. <laughs> Because I'm sort of laughing at myself as I recall the just the incredible, the sort of slow slog and confusion of trying to figure out what the essay was about, what Mm -hmm. a potential essay would be about. And I guess in talking about it, there's something sort of, I don't know, it sounds sort of sort of precious. So I'm kind of laughing at myself. It doesn't feel precious to me. Okay. I mean, it feels like... uh... You know, feels like the thing. Feels like kind of what the whole thing is about. Yeah, it's it's funny. I really, I was very wary about publishing the piece, and and the the whole book came into being really because I had that essay. I finally kind of got it into some semblance of of finished ish shape, and I had I showed it to a couple friends who are writers and smart readers, and they said, "Oh well, no, this is exactly what you should be writing. Like this is." This is for real. Like you, you know, you do a lot of other stuff, and that's fine. But this is what you should be doing. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll write some more essays, you know, sort of in this vein, and and see where we go. But it was it was a, that that particular essay, Mattresside, was very hard to write, and it was almost even harder decision to to publish it because I knew that that it would hurt some people and that that it would rub a lot of other people the wrong way. But I have been pleasantly surprised. People seem to really relate to it and and find a kind of um, catharsis in it. What do people seem to relate to? Just this experience of, of having a parent or some family member be in a situation where you're supposed to feel a certain way about that situation and not feeling it. This this mandate to perform emotion, I think, is, is pretty common. And it, it manifests in all sorts of ways. Um, so I think that people people seem to be relating to that. I, I was I was I've been really pleasantly surprised because I was expecting a pretty vocal, dis- disturbed reaction, <laughs> which maybe is happening, and I'm just not hearing it. Oh, I'm wearing your plugs. I forgot <laughs> it's out there. I'm sure you'd be hearing it. The, yeah. the other thing in that essay is not just not knowing what to say or feeling that emotion, but then also like um, expecting the grand wisdom. That will follow these kind of like life altering oh, events. It's a tyranny. The things that we expect of the dying, the things we expect of the people who care for the dying. I was reading all these books when when my mother was sick because I was really sort of concerned and interested about what would happen, the actual process of of the body breaking down and just the illness progressing. And a lot of them talked about how on the deathbed, the person would suddenly open their eyes and say some, as you say, grand piece of wisdom or or relate, relay a message from some other person who had died, who they had somehow communicated with. And, and, and none of these things happened just because 
of the nature of my personality and my mother's personality and our whole family dynamic, it would have been bizarre if something like that happened. And I, but I just remember feeling like such a failure about it. And it led me to start thinking about the expectations that we impose on, on experiences like, like death. And I would even think other, other things like, you know, an experience, I, I, I'm sure that around the birth process, there are very, there are an analogous set of expectations that, that, you know, we feel like failures if we don't meet these emotional standards. Yeah, there's definitely like some checkboxes that people expect you to hit. After mm-hmm. you, like uh, there's actual things that they would like to hear you say about how your life has been changed. Right. I got to say, in my case, it kind of like I did do that. Mm-hmm. I did feel the boxes were checked. But uh, yeah, that's like that is the question is like, is your life totally different now? Yeah, and, and and you wouldn't want your life to be totally different because wouldn't that suggest that you have just like no soul? I mean... <laughs> Are you a totally different person? Well, really, then you should need to check yourself into an institution because that's not fair enough. How to fair how enough. to go through the world? I am an altered person. So you had this crazy kind of freak disease, mm-hmm. freak virus. Yeah, it actually turned out to be a bacterial infection, but they thought it was a virus for a long time. Yeah, very, very, very sick. Yeah, doctors called your recovery miraculous. Yeah, when your neurologist is saying the word miracle, you're in trouble. And what were the questions that people asked you then? Oh, are you going to be a better person? Are you going to live your life differently now? Have you rethought any of your opinions about religion or the afterlife? Um, do you see the world differently? You know, it was one of these things where I was I was unconscious. I I, I got um, typhus, which is not typhoid. It's typhus, which is very different um, from flea bites and just because of a random set of complications, I got very, very sick and was eventually put into a, a medically induced coma. So I was actually unconscious for about five days. And during that time, I got sicker and the doctors were telling my family that if I did recover, I would possibly be brain damaged. I mean, it was like terrifying for them. So I ended up waking up thinking that no time had passed, but to... You know, my friends and family and and everyone who ever knew me because this email chain had started going around with updates as to my condition. And at times they had gotten very dire. Suddenly everybody thinking it was a miracle that I was alive. And it was as if I had closed my eyes one minute and then opened them the next. And (laughs) so I was expected to have this this enormously changed perspective. And you felt the same. Uh, basically, I mean, I don't know. Even real, I mean, even thinking at the time, like, oh, you know, I, I think I'm probably just gonna go back to my to my old crappy ways, um, <laughs> pretty soon. I mean, I felt I was I was I, I was grateful to have survived, and I suppose I was mostly embarrassed. You know, I was really embarrassed. Well, no, I mean, I obviously I was grateful to survive, but I was trying to think like what my primary. I'm not sure that that was my primary. Reaction. I think. I think fundamentally, I was mortified at having been so sick and having all the, you know, all these people worried about me and you know, sort of draining attention and energy from people, and also like just being in the intensive care unit and looking horrible, and people coming in and seeing me, and I don't know who they were. And I still think about that. Like, did that person see me? Did that person? Ooh. <laughs> you don't ask. No, I try not to. I try not to. Not surprisingly, I guess, that piece ends with you uh, not drawing some grand conclusion other than you don't actually know what the story is about. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I say in the first piece, too, in Matricide, in the history of the world, a whole story has never been told. And I think that's one of those assumptions. I mean, as as writers, we think, well, there has to be closure. There has to be a beginning, middle of an end. The character has to go through a change. And then in life, we're supposed to have some sort of arc or we're supposed to have some aha moment as if the experience isn't legitimate unless we get something out of it. We've learned a lesson. And that is so culturally constructed, as they say. And it, it's so it's so artificial. It's also a, a classic trope of the personal essay. Yeah. Here's the wisdom I have found. Here's right. the lesson I have learned. Right. Here's how I am changed. Yeah. And I really, I wanted to write essays that did not do that. And none of them do. And it's funny, I have some criticism of the book has sort of been in the vein of, well, but these don't really go anywhere. Like, she doesn't learn anything. This sort of doesn't end. And it's like, yeah, that's the whole point. That's <laughs> why I wrote the book. <laughs> so, You are, to a reader, you are as exposed as a writer can be in that in that piece in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are writing pretty horrible things about yourself. Things, th- mm-hmm. thoughts you've had about your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, you even sort of like call it out in the beginning. Like I'm going to say some things here that are going to make you pretty uncomfortable with right. me. Right. I- I'm interested in what you discover as you're writing, and also what are you presenting, and what and and what are you holding back? I mean, it really has to serve the piece. I'm trying to think. Maybe what I'm asking is like, how real is it? Well, everything in there is real is true. I mean, there are things that I haven't put in because. I don't think they're relevant or because, you know, like I was saying, when I was writing Matricide, I would take out three sentences for every two that I wrote. It, so it was it was there's a lot that's not in there. I, I guess, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a difference between being vulnerable and being intimate with your reader um, and, and being and being petty and asking for permission and I, I, what I don't do is sort of say, wow, look what a jerk I am. Uh, can you please forgive me? Or, or you know, wow, I was so, I was so petty in this moment. I mean, I, I'm sure there are, as, as horrible as the behaviors um, I described in that piece were, I'm sure there are things that I did that I didn't put in for, for whatever reason. Like were, like, were too ugly for you to recognize or too ugly for you to put in? Well, I'm sure there are some that I didn't recognize that I still d- didn't recognize, so I couldn't tell you what they are. I mean, there was one detail in there that there's a terrible scene in the essay where I'm in the hospital with my mother, and she ha- she had a gastrointestinal cancer, which is not the kind you want to get. Um and, you know, she was dealing with incontinence and it was a situation where she wanted me to sleep in the, she wanted me to stay with her in the hospital and like sleep there overnight for a couple nights because she didn't like the staff or she didn't like the nurses or whatever. And it was a thing where she was actually like having accidents in bed and she would call for the nurse and they would have to come clean her up all the time. And I actually, this was in overnight and I actually pretended to be asleep because I did not want to get up and have to clean her up. And maybe the nurses weren't coming as quickly as she would have wanted them to. Another kind of daughter obviously would have done this. And I felt terrible about that. But I also felt like in retrospect, I realized that a lot of the reason that I didn't get up was that I wanted to preserve her dignity in a way. I We did not have the kind of relationship where the daughter would do that for the mother. I think that 
as much as she liked the idea of her daughter staying over, she would not have liked me cleaning her up or helping her in that way. And I will say that if she had, if the nurses hadn't come or if she had called out for me or something, of course I would have helped her. Of mm-hmm. course. That is a detail that I almost did not put in the piece. I almost took it out at many times, even late in the publishing stages of the book. And I had to say to myself, look, y- this is probably a reason that you should keep it in. Because you wanted to take because it out? Because I wanted to take it out. And you know, I have noticed that it has been mentioned in a couple of reviews, and I really cringe. But at the same time, I think it's mentioned because I think that people do relate to it. I have had people say, yeah, I had a similar experience where I just pretended not to hear somebody who needed me. And, and I think it does happen. And, and I guess... You know, there were there may have been other moments like that where that I that I didn't choose to put in. I mean, I certainly that is that is the most damning. That is probably the worst moment in the book, but it's there. The reverse of that, right? Not deciding what to put in and what to keep out, but part of what interests me about like the kind of life of a personal essayist is whether you go out and look for material. <laughs> you know, like and th- and there's uh there is like a, a section in the book where you're talking about like old boyfriends yeah. and how kind of like uh what you were really looking for was like good characters yeah. and stories. Yeah. How aware are you of things that could be good become good essays? Do you know as you're living your life like, hey, this this could be good and also do you put yourself in situations that are going to lead to good stories? I think I do that less. Certainly when I was younger, I put myself in situations that were interesting to me. I don't think I ever said, hey, I'm going to do this thing only because I'm going to write about it. I I would do things because I thought they were interesting, and then I ended up writing about them. I mean, I sometimes say, like, oh, hey, this is something I might write about someday. But no, it's not like I go looking for trouble, you know. And in terms of the 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 there is a the essay that you're talking about in the book has to do in part with with dating like really inappropriate people, which is something that I, people tend to do when they're younger. And because I always was pretty clear on my not wanting to have children, so I I, it, I was able to extend that period um, well into my thirties. Because I wasn't looking for, you know, a suitable man to be the father of my children. So in, in reflecting, like, why I dated various eccentrics and inappropriate characters, it occurred to me that, that that's kind of what's rich about life and that you have these great stories and these these people that we interact with are quite valuable. Even if they seem like a waste of time on the surface, they're really not a waste of time because they, they supply the, the contents of your experience and, and of your writing. Right. Do you think like your life would be as rich if you didn't write about it? If I didn't write about it, <laughs> I would be richer because I would have a real job and I would <laughs> be able to actually earn a living better than I do. Uh, for me, the way I figure out what I think is to write. So, no. I mean, to the it's the, the sort of essence of my life and myself is turning my experiences into pieces of writing, some of which people will read and some of which they won't. But I don't think that generally one has to write to have a rich experience. I just think I'm wired that way. You do do all kinds of writing. You've got this weekly column, like yeah. an opinion column, takes on the news, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, I write about culture and social politics. And Is it hard to get, get up for that every week? Yes. It's funny. In nine years, you'd think it would get easier, but it actually gets harder. It's like throwing a boulder over a mountain every week. <laughs> it's a great platform. I do love doing it. It's really 
fun and a privilege to be able to participate in the conversation in a, in a relatively public way. But yeah, there are some weeks where it's just not happening. And you have to accept that you're not going to hit a home run every week. Sometimes they're going to not be good. And you move on to the next one. And that's a great thing for a writer. Was it hard to learn that lesson? Uh, it took me a couple of years. But it's it's actually incredibly liberating because you just you know not to be precious about yourself. Just move on to the next thing. I would never do that for like the essays in this book, obviously. It's a totally different kind of muscle and presentation. But with journalism, your deadline is your friend, you know. It's interesting, like um, both these forms that you work in, these personal essays and also these columns, are things that have been kind of like widely adopted on the internet, right? Like people are writing about themselves mm-hmm. and they're writing strong opinions about the day's news. Yes. That is the thing that is done. There's too much of both. There's too much opinion journalism and there are too many personal essays. So, so I'm guilty on both counts. Or you f- have found a way to rise above all of that well, stuff. Well, that's nice counts. of you to say. I don't. Sometimes I sink beneath. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of it. And, you know, there's some practical reasons for that too. It's cheaper for for media outlets to publish personal essays and opinion journalism because you don't have to pay for reporting. You don't have to put people on planes and send them to other countries to get the facts on the ground. Do you feel like you're competing with that stuff? Are you competing with the uh, millions of voices who also have a take on the day's news? Yes. And and often I, I really, I have a pretty high bar for originality. And so... I, I, I like to make a point. I like to try to make a point that no one has made, or at least no one I've read has made. So so sometimes it's hard if everyone is weighing in on something and I read too much about it, then I kind of think, oh, I can't. I don't want to say what someone else has said. So it's sometimes it's a good idea not to read too much until you've done your own piece that week, you know. My misspent youth, you, you, you uh, mentioned it earlier, the book of essays, but the actual essay itself ran 15 years ago yeah. in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it feel like a long time ago yes, now? Yes, I can't believe it. I'm really old. <laughs> <laughs> and that story is about uh, sort of your 20s in New York as a young writer falling pretty deeply into debt. And there's yeah. a lot in the new book about putting sort of like your older self in conversation with your yeah. younger self. Yeah. And so I'm interested... What are your thoughts about it now? What are your thoughts about Megan Daum 15 years ago? <laughs> I was Daum 15 years ago. Right. It's funny. I'm really nostalgic for that time. I'm not a terribly nostalgic person, but I'm very, I, I feel like my sort of default mood and attitude is in my 20s living in New York City and just being so hungry in so many different ways. You know, I go back and read that piece and it almost seems like I could still, it could have been written today. I mean, obviously the the price tags are all, you know, would need to be updated. But yeah, I I think that, you know, every artist circles around the same themes over and over again throughout their career. And I've always been interested in issues around, you know, fantasy versus reality and authenticity, issues around class, social class. I think that that's like the last taboo. People will talk about gender, race, whatever. But to talk about the nuances of, of social class, like that has always fascinated me. So, yeah, I guess it's a continuation. I mean, I thought about calling this new book my misspent middle age, but somebody in marketing (laughs) said said no. (laughs) But you don't really feel like your, your youth was misspent. You're nostalgic for it. The New Yorker actually titled the piece My Misspent Youth when it was originally published. And then the, the, the My Misspent Youth became the title piece of the book of essays. And I wanted to call the whole book, Let the Trinkets Do the Talking. 
This is an exclusive. I don't think I've ever said this publicly. And that was the title. That was, I believe, that was the title of the galley. That was the title that was on the galley. It was published by Open City Books, which was small press, and because it was like about the trappings of things versus the reality of things, whatever. And I thought that was a great title. And finally, at the like the eleventh hour, somebody at Open City said, "You know, that is just not a good title, and we really need to call it My Misspent Youth." Like that's really catchy. <laughs> and I actually remember thinking, "I can't call it that because my parents will be mad. My parents will be mad that it's called My Misspent Youth because it will reflect poorly on them." And indeed, they were for that reason. And they've never liked the title. And I actually never really liked it. But that is the title. What do you think your mom would think of the new book? Oh, she would hate it. The book would not exist if... You couldn't have written that story? No, never. No, 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 no. I mean, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to write the story. I mean, a lot lot of what's in this book has come out of the last four years, which was like turning 40, getting married... Um, my mother died when I was 39. I got married when I was 39, you know, right before she died. Just coming into a different stage in, in life. Um, so I, I think that I, I think that the book wouldn't exist um, if not for a lot of things, and that's just one of them. There's a hunger in 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 that essay in my misspent youth. There's like your your um, your ambition is like so plainly on the table, you know. Yeah. Looking back on it, like is that still there? Are you as are you as ambitious? Or are you as as hungry as you were when you were younger? And I don't think I'm. I, I had so much anxiety back then that I somehow wouldn't make it. Not because I wasn't talented enough, but some because I didn't. I always thought like, oh, you don't know the right people. Like somehow, I thought I wasn't going to get lucky. I thought I didn't have. The, I wouldn't have the luck portion. So now I feel, and I did get, I ended up, I did get lucky in, in several different ways. Um, and I think that's part of it. I, 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 I mean, it's, you can't, there are incredibly talented writers, artists, everyone out there that don't um, get to the place that they should get because they haven't had a break. I mean, so I, I, I and I was fortunate to, to have a couple things happen. So I, that anxiety is gone. Um, but sure, I still... I still have, we all do, don't we? I mean, most of it, I, most of my hunger still centers around real estate. Like if I go into somebody's fantastic apartment in New York, I just like, oh, it all comes back. I'm, I might as well be 25 again. <laughs> but now you're coming back. You're going to come back to New York. So you can, you'll be in, uh, you're going to be here for a couple of months. Yeah, I'm going to be, be like, yeah, I'm gonna be living in New York um, just uh, for four months or four or five months. You're walking to all kinds of people's apartments. I know. I better get myself prepared. The end of my misspend youth. The end of that essay. Um, I, feel, I feel we have a lot of like young writers who listen to the show, uh-huh. and um, you know that is among the like definitive essays about life as a young writer, particularly in New York. <laughs> and it ends with you being like, "Fuck it, I'm out of here. I'm going to Lincoln, Nebraska." I know. How come nobody followed me? If it was really that definitive, they would all be living there now. We would be having this conversation in Lincoln. Okay, so for the uh, young writer. Who is not on the Upper West Side, but is like uh, Upper West Side? They're not on the Upper West Side. That's anymore. what I'm saying. They're, they're like uh, you know Bushwick, living right. with like nine people right now, and fantasizing right. about moving to Lincoln, Nebraska, or whatever their <laughs> Lincoln, Nebraska may be. Uh-huh. Uh, what's your advice there? Uh, go because New it, York is really provincial. New York is great, but you know it's 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 limiting. Go and and get stuff to write about. Really, stay if you can afford it. But seriously, don't don't knock yourself out permanently. 
Nebraska worked out for you? Oh, Nebraska was great. I love Nebraska. How long were you there for? Almost four years. I wrote a novel there. I lived on a farm. I lived on a little house on the prairie. I got a fantastic dog. I go back there as often as I can. I think it's beautiful. I love the landscape. I love the flat prairie and the big sky and all that. So reading My Misspent Youth uh, and then and then reading your, your new book, there's a quote in the new book that uh, I'm going to read to you now. And you can, you can tell me how this relates to that essay and that time in your life. Life is mostly an exercise in being something other than what we used to be while remaining fundamentally and sometimes maddeningly who we are. So looking back 15 years ago to when that essay came out, what parts are you the same and what parts are different? I think almost all of me is the same. Isn't that terrible? I wish I could say that that I was I've sort of grown up since then or I, my preoccupations were had changed, my priorities had changed. I I think that um I I'm the same person, I'm just a little I have a little less anxiety about it. And I and I I appreciate a world beyond New York City. I think that that has changed, but Look, the whole book is about how we stay who we are. Right. You're not going to learn a grand lesson just because you're put in a kind of crazy situation. No. No. Speaking for myself. Your book is kind of like an antidote to self-help. Yeah, but, you're right. But the message is sort of like, yeah, you're okay. Yeah. Like, whatever your bullshit is, is your bullshit. But you're you're doing fine. You don't need to radically change. Yeah, or it's just like, either either, if you want to radically change, I guess radically change, but if you don't want to, don't. It's kind of like the com- the comfort zone is really overrated. I, I mean, underrated. Going out of your comfort zone is overrated. So I think it's it's about staying in the comfort zone. Your comfort zone just happens to be writing uh, brutally honest essays about yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, although it's not always comfortable. I mean, it's not. I will say that it's not. Um, people often ask if it's cathartic to write these things, and it's not at all. It's not writing matricide is not cathartic. It's it's gives me a tremendous amount of amount of um, anxiety that I that I've upset people or I've hurt people. I mean, it's it's I I would hope that it it's cathartic in some ways to the reader. Um, but for me, no, no. I, I don't think any of these pieces make me feel better than I did before I started them. Um, I'm happy to have turned them into something interesting, but I don't necessarily feel soothed or cured or or like I'm going to move on or anything. But maybe you don't feel the need to. No, I guess not. Yeah. Megan, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Our sponsors, Tiny Letter, Oscar, and Scribd. Thanks so much to them, and thanks to Megan Dom for taking the time. Her essay, My Misspent Youth, is up in full on longform.org. Alongside the best of the year, My Misspent Youth is from 1999. But all of the best articles, our favorite pieces from 2014, are up right now on longform.org. Go check it out. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.